what we want to do is start where we were last week, which was Paul in, in um, Acts 19.10, and do an overview of preaching in public forums, a review of Athens, and then we'll go forward and show that Paul is brought before kings in, in the way that Jesus said in Luke before Paul was, was uh, converted, but then it carries on in Acts 1, Acts, and so on. As they're going to go before kings. Why would you be brought before a king? And the answer, I'll tell you right now, is a testimony of Jesus. <coughs> For Jesus. So, Eric, do you want to begin with prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the celebration of your resurrection. And we pray, Lord, as we look at the book of Acts, that you would help us to think well and help us to learn more about you and your, your world, Lord. And we, uh, we pray today that we would uh, be those who are not just hearers of the word, but doers. We pray that you would use the word to sanctify us and lead us to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, to that end... Acts 19, 9 through 10, and others in Acts, you have a handout that should cover all of these slides. Acts 19, 9, we talked about a little bit. This is just to get us up to speed. <clears throat> but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we covered this, and he began in a synagogue, and some believed there were some that were hardened, and then he continues to re use reasoning, dialegomai, and that's used 10 times in the book of Acts, starting in Acts 17.2, out of 13 total in the New Testament, why say that? Because there are, have always been people who would suggest that reason, logic, evidence is not valid in religion or Christianity in particular, but what we really need is some sort of a leap of faith or contemplative state or what have you. But that's not how the Bible portrays the gospel. These things happen before witnesses. They're objective. And that is what we want to emphasize. We've talked about that a number of time, times. So reasoning is a word that's used a few times in the New Testament, but 10 times in Acts. I covered that, so I want to keep moving because I hope we can get through this whole PowerPoint today. Now... We talked about this a little last week. Acts 17, 17, and 18. So he was reasoning, here's our word, in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, 
he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Today, we're remembering that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So one thing that I've been looking for as we go through all these speeches, he preaches Jesus in the resurrection. Jesus in the resurrection. That's a consistent theme throughout Acts. And when I was in Bible college in the early 70s, one of the teachers that I had was the first one to point this out to me, and it bears out, and I'll show you today. Every speech by an apostle or someone else speaking authoritatively for God in in, uh, Acts mentions the resurrection, every single one. And they present the resurrection as cold, sober truth. We'll see that in a bit. So the resurrection and the objectivity of it and the promises that the resurrected Lord gave to his disciples are the ground of biblical Christianity. And Paul points that out in 1 Corinthians 15, the necessity of the resurrection as evidence. We're not asking anybody to believe in fairy dust or just turn off your mind. We'll see you in a moment. In fact, someone told me that I shouldn't add adjectives to truth. That was in a public debate. Why? Because adjectives define things. Why can't we just have truth? Well, the reason we can't just have truth is that the secular world says, you have your truth, I have my truth. And so Paul's truth was the resurrected Lord appeared to him. Peter's truth was he saw the resurrected Lord. Your truth is this is a mystical, magical mystery, magical mystery tour. I'm saying the Beatles, not a very good source. But the fact is, this is objective truth. We'll see that. We covered this a little bit last week. And then when he gets from the Agora to Mars Hill, uh, he preaches the same thing. We covered that earlier. Now let's go to Acts 19.10. Now we're back to this. I'm going to cover this, and then I preach the next two weeks, and it will be going forward to the exorcists that we find in uh, verse 11 on. And we'll talk about the supernatural, the demonic, and how we can know what is right and wrong concerning Christian ministry. But that's the future. Right now we want to look at verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this is a reference to the Roman province of Asia. And I'll cite something here. I found out my I can expand my nose. I have one source I have is Dr. Peterson, who's a British scholar. He said the result was that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Then he mentions TNIV has rightly interpreted Asia to mean the Roman province of Asia. The word of the Lord was heard throughout the province. As widespread evangelistic activity was encouraged by Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And so that goes on. And I mentioned here that 
Ephesus becomes a very important place in the New Testament. We find Ephesus is, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. There's a, an epistle to the Ephesians mentioned in 1 and 2 Timothy, where Timothy was, and in Revelation. So Ephesus is a key place. And what happens in Ephesus later is where Paul gathers the elders and announces what he's done, why it's important, and then that's where we have the incident where they beg him not to go to Jerusalem. Agabus. So that's a preview of what's going to happen. Now I'll keep going. I'm hoping we're going to have enough time to discuss some of the issues that come up, but we're going to fast forward a little bit, but in the meantime... Turn with me, before we get to Felix, turn with me to Acts 23.11. Acts 23.11. I, I spent so many hours this last week looking at these things, making sure I had the historical facts right. So if you turn to Acts, to Acts 23.11, we see another appearance of the Lord Jesus himself Stood that comes to Paul. Now remember in Acts 9, the Lord confronted Saul of Tarsus, who was an enemy of the gospel. He was converted. And then here we have yet another appearance. Look at Acts 23.11. Um, it says, I'll read up to it, and then you turn to the right place. Acts 23.6, I'll read to 11. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and, and it is with respect to the hope and the re resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Now, this happened with the events that transpired after Paul went to, to Jerusalem where he was rejected. And the appeals that happened started with James warning. Remember, he got there. We have 3,000 who are zealous for the law. And Paul does some unusual things to try to convince them. He's not anti-Jewish. And then this is what happens as these appeals. So he mentions the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because the Sadducees don't believe in it. They don't believe there's a resurrection, only the Pharisees. So when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly, this is the, uh, of the Jews, was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all, them all. 23.9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes in the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. So, hey, he's on our side. See, beware. Everybody's looking for who's on their side. But we've got to be careful that our side isn't in opposition to the truth of the gospel. And that's really an important point because the Pharisees themselves, Paul was a proud Pharisee but rejected Christ until he was converted. A great clamor arose and they found nothing wrong with him. And 
verse 10, dissension became violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force, bring him to the barracks. Now look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in in an appearance to Paul. Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, the word in the Greek is day, which Luke uses consistently as a divine necessity, you must testify also in Rome. So the Lord himself already objectively told Paul he must testify also in Rome. So keep that in mind. So some months from now or years when we get back to the Acts 20 and Agabus and the prophecy that this is what happened if you go to Rome. Paul was going to go to Rome. He said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He was going to go to Rome. The Lord himself affirmed that's what must happen. So that's part of God's providence, but also here special revelation. Any comment on that? I think I'm keeping up pretty good here. Five slides, yeah, we're okay. Anybody want to comment on Acts 23:11? That's the Lord himself. Later I'll show you that he said that when the Lord first appeared to him, he also said, and I will appear to you. So there was a prediction of, of further appearances. And this is unique to Paul. Yes, go ahead, Adam. Just a quick comment, uh, not to go off topic, uh, but uh, they spoke about if a spirit or an angel spoke to him, then who speaks to him? An angel or a spirit? No, No, the Lord. Lord, The Lord himself. (laughs) So the the authority of the the Lord is the one who spoke to him. And so... Kind of like it you were, you were saying, they're, they're not point. quite on his side, but yeah. <laughs> even if they have some theological they, agreement. They, yeah, they had their political reasons, but the real reason is that Christ was raised. He did appear to Paul. And that's, and that's what, by and large, so many of the Pharisees denied uh, even in that assembly. Yeah, they were the seculists or the political people. They're more interested in politics than salvation. Now... Then when we go to uh, Acts 24, I have a few things here leading up to this. Acts 24, 5 and 6, I'll read that to you, and then we'll start right here. When he was brought before, there's a person, person named Tertullus, Acts 24, 1, and uh, verse 24, 5, I'll read that. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader, verse 24, 5, of a sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So they were saying, despite Paul, as we'll see as we go through Acts, going to lengths that normally you wouldn't expect him to do, taking a vow doing the things 
They say, no, he brought a Gentile into the temple. That's why we want to do this. But it wasn't even true. Okay? So they say that in Acts 24, 6. He tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And then, so there was this riot and so forth. Uh, Let me read verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, uh, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that, that this is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now, let's look at verses 12 through 15. That's on the slide. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And I have this highlighted in blue. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's the term hahados in the Greek, which is used for Christians, not the cult called the Way International that's in our recent history, but these are Christians, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So here he preach, preaches about what is said in the Old Testament that there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. There's a future accountability. And that would be something the Sadducees denied. And I think that what we need to learn about this, there's no reason to compromise the gospel because the culture doesn't like what it says. And I've said that to a lot of different people. We might as well lay out the truth. If there's a judgment based on what God has said, John 12, 48, the red-letter Christians don't believe there's a judgment, but the red-letters say that whoever doesn't believe in me, in my words, there's one that will judge him in the last day, the words that I've spoken. And in a debate with an emergent guy who doesn't believe there's a future judgment, I cited red letters saying there is. So they don't believe the red letters. Don't, don't, don't be deceived. They only believe in moral and spiritual evolution or whatever, more like the Sadducees. There's no judgment or whatever. The fact is, Paul said this before Felix, who was then the governor of the area. Then, after this, let's see what we have here. Okay, let me give you some more context. And I'll read from Acts 24, 24 through 27, before we go to the next slide. Then Acts 24, 24, and some day, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, there's our word, about righteousness and self-control 
in the coming judgment, Acts 24, 25, Felix was alarmed. Well, if you're not serving Christ and hear about coming judgment, you should be alarmed. If you're not alarmed, that's a bad sign. He was alarmed. That's what it says here. And um, let me find my spot here. Okay, he was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I don't think that means he doesn't want to hear from him again. But it does say he hoped for money. Acts 24, 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now, I did a lot of study on this this last week. It doesn't imply that he didn't care because he didn't get any money, but he kept bringing him back anyhow. And that's like in Acts 17. They, they did want to hear again. Some people don't repent the first time they hear the gospel. And some people who initially reject the gospel, like Saul of Tarsus, later are converted. But if they are converted, you know it. Now, when two years had elapsed, so it said he sent for him often and conversed with him. So there was more discussion with Felix. After two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Por- Porcius Festus, desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. They, he just left him there. Now we have Festus. Now we go forward. I'm trying to cover a lot of material so we get the fact that these are real governors, real people ruling in that area at that time. And Josephus confirms these things. Other historical documents are there. Historians confirm this. This is fact. These are not mystical places. These are real people. So um, let me tell you who this Agrippa is in Acts 26. He is Herod Agrippa II. So let me read some material I have here as I expand my notes. I'll read the text, and this is Agrippa, and then I'll read about him. And now I stand here on trial. Okay, Felix Festus now he comes to Herod Agrippa II. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, that is, the Old Testament scriptures, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you, any of you that God raises the dead. Why do you think that's impossible? Why do you think it can't happen? Now, Agrippa was partially Jewish, and he was part of the Herodian diocese, and I'll read some material about that. All of this you can look up. In my logos, I had this Harper Collins Bible Dictionary. So here's what I'm going to quote from that. Herod Agrippa II. Agrippa's sister, Bernice, had been the wife of Herod of Chalcis, 
and she came to live with her brother after her husband's death. Their relationship became notorious as an incestuous affair, which apparently lasted through their lives in spite of her brief marriage to Polemon of Cilicia and her scandalous affair with Titus. So this Bernice had some problems. Okay? Not not well, not good repute. This is part of the history of this whole thing. In Acts 25, it's, I'm continuing to cite this um, historical material from a encyclopedia, the Bible dictionary. In Acts 25, 13 through 26, 32, Paul appears before Agrippa and Bernice as a prisoner. Agrippa was directly involved in the completion of the Jerusalem temple and the subsequent paving of the streets of Jerusalem with white marble. His true loyalty to Rome never wavered. However, even when put to the ultimate test provided by the Jewish revolt of 66, I would say, CE means common era, as they say things now, and its subsequent suppression by the Romans. Agrippa, after futile attempts to forestall revolt, joined the Roman side and not only regained his kingdom with Rome, Roman help, but was closely associated with Titus, the conqueror of Jerusalem. Agrippa moved to Rome where he died after 93, I would say, A.D. So there's the historical setting. So think about this. A former enemy of Christ, a a zealot, someone who was breathing threats of slaughter against disciples of the Lord, who heard Stephen's speech, held the clothes of those who stoned him, went out breathing these threats, is confronted by the Lord himself and converted. And someone was sent, the good Ananias came to talk to him. And here he is being brought before kings and continually affirmed the resurrection of the dead. Something that he was outraged about when he heard Stephen preach. Is that something? So this is Agrippa II, which had a rather tainted past and a difficult situation in his own world, but he lived on to see the destruction of Jerusalem. So that is what is going on in Acts 26, 6 through 8. I'll go down another slide here. So what is Paul going to preach to to this Jewish, okay, in some sense he's considered Jewish, that's part of why he was in charge here. What's he going to preach? Acts 26, 19 through 21. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. 
For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now remember as you're hearing this and thinking about what had happened, think about the fact that the Lord himself in Acts 23.11 told Paul, you must testify for me in Rome. Remember Acts 23.11? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. Paul knows he's going to Rome. He did not rebel when he went to Jerusalem, despite um, some claim that he did. This is what was going to happen. This is in keeping with the Great Commission. Let me read. Let me see how far I go here. I'm going to do a little review some of this I had too many slides so I had to take out let me do a review if you want to turn to Luke 24 44 through 47 I want to show you that this is what should be preached and why he continued to preach it Acts 24, 44 through 47. I was trying to, this week I spent hours and hours and hours going over all of this again and looking up resources to make sure this is accurate. Acts 24, 44 through 47. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you that all things, we're going all the way back to Luke. Got that? This is on the road to Emmaus. I, I, Eric will be preaching about the resurrection. I haven't seen his outline, but Luke, excuse me, I probably said it wrong. Luke twenty four forty four, Luke twenty four forty four to forty seven. This is a review of what was said before Saul of Tarsus was even converted to the disciples, as Jesus appeared and spoke to them on the road to Emmaus. Now he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Let me stop right there. The Sadducees were wrong. They only believed in the first five books. But he says all things written about me must be fulfilled. And so that would be the Tanakh. Verse 25. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. So what was fulfilled? Right here. Thus it is written that the Christ, by the word, by the way, the word the Christ, ha Christos, means the anointed one. All Christians are born of God. If they know God and are born again, they are anointed. But the anointed one is Christ. The false anointed one is Antichrist. Claims to be anointed, but is not the Holy Spirit. So he is ha Christos, the anointed one, the true uh, Christ. Would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. 
That's what we talk about today. Verse 24, 47, and repentance and forgiveness of sins, Luke 24, 47, would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was in Luke 24. I had a slide, but I had to take it out. It ran out of space. So now we fast forward, right, we're here, Acts 26, 19 through 21. This is real solid evidence for the narrative unity of Luke-Acts. Saul wasn't even on the scene at the time, as far as Luke is concerned, but the disciples are told that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So now here we have Paul in Acts doing that proclamation that all people should repent and turn to God. Now what about performing deeds in keeping with their repentance? There are people who claim to repent, but they're still serving the devil. Or like Simon the Sorcerer. Someone asked about Ananias and Sapphira earlier. Um, they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's not a good way to go about things. So it doesn't mean that you do worse than first and then, okay, now it's proof I repented. It's that repentance would be turning. It's a, a synonym. So turning to God from vain idols. Turning from serving self, Satan, sin, religion, whatever it is that people uh, are serving and trusting God and honoring him and living by his word and putting faith in him. So if you're still like Simon the Sorcerer, well, I think if I buy this, I can make a lot of money. That's not from God. Okay? Repentance and forgiveness of sin. So Paul, as Luke is showing us, is doing what Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it continues. So that's the narrative unit. Uh, unity. For this reason, the Jews seized me in a temple and tried to kill me. The best way to be hated and attacked is to preach Christ and the resurrection and do so in a very forthright way. We don't need to make friends. We don't need to have everybody like us. We don't need to gain influence, but we need to be faithful to the Great Commission to preach Christ and the resurrection. Let's go here to verse 20, Acts 26, 22 to 23. Some of this you can jot down. <clears throat> to this day, to this day, he continues his, his talk before Agrippa II. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Remember, Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus told disciples that all things written to me, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must come to pass. So he's, this continues. In the prophets and Moses, so that's 
things that both the Pharisees and Sadduc the Sadducees only believe Moses, but it all will come to pass, that Christ must suffer. So the suffering Messiah is predicted in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you that it's also prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And this, what we call the Great Commission, is grounded in promises in the Old Testament. And so here in front of Agrippa II, compromised, immoral, later happy to see the temple destroyed, all of this stuff going on, Paul still preaches the truth. And because this is what God is doing, is what God called the apostles to preach. Christ must suffer that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And while I'm talking about this, someone can look up Isaiah 49.6. Isaiah 49.6. This is the most clear statement of the Great Commission in the Old Testament. And I'll say a few more things. That he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Notice it says, the first to rise from the dead. So anyone who read the Old Testament or the Gospel of John would say, well, how can that be? Because Lazarus rose from the dead, right? But he died again. In fact, this will blow your mind. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He comes after, he, was a, he stunk up the tube. He was a four-day guy. He was already rotting. He comes out. And what does it say in John 12? They were looking to kill him. Well, we'll fix that. We'll kill him again. Jesus is the one who rose immortal, who bodily ascended to heaven. He's the first fruit. And so that's what that means. And what about light? Does somebody have Isaiah 49, 6 ready to... Yeah, I, I got it. Go ahead. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Yeah, so my salvation may reach in the version I have to the end of the earth. And um, it's important. It's important. I remember when I was in seminary, the one, the one teacher I had who had studied under somebody I really disagreed with, he studied out of Fuller Seminary and was really committed to the what we might call the social gospel or the seeker-sensitive or whatever. I, I wrote a paper for that class, and I kept, we'd say what he believed, and I would interact in class, which is you're supposed to do in seminary. And we disagree, we disagree. So I wrote a paper for the class based on the promise given in the Old Testament about salvation. I wrote on Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, and he gave me an A on it, and it was just totally impressive. The paper, even though he disagreed with 
my philosophy. In those days, there was, what would you call it, integrity in the classroom. In other words, and I think it should be that way, that if you're going to have a place where we can discuss, we need to be able to look at evidence. And he agreed with, with what this is saying, even though we had other disagreements. I think um, he had studied personally under Donald McGavran, who was the founder of the Seeker Movement. And I think McGavran did a lot of damage by assuming that you can create a people movement without a work of grace through the gospel itself. But at least I got an A in a paper. <laughs> now, um, this idea is also cited in Acts 13, 47. I need to keep moving here. We have a few more slides. Look at 24... Uh, 26, 24, through 26. This is uh, a passage that came up in a debate with the emergent, but it's interesting what happens here. So he's preaching there. Agrippa II is there. Festus is there. There have been a lot of scandals in the background, Bernice and so on. But here's Paul brought before kings. Here's what he's saying. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, who replaced Felix, by the way, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. See, they didn't have emergent yet. Uh, the idea that everything's evolving spiritually. You know, just turn off your mind, contemplate, they were thinking that way, and these things have been around, but your, your learning is driving you out of your mind. No, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. I think another translation says, I am speaking words of sober truth. Does anybody have that in theirs? Words of sober truth. When someone confronted me in a public debate saying, why do you have adjectives when you discuss truth? Because I had said objective truth, evidence for truth. I had various words, propositional truth. There's different things you can say. Why don't get rid of the adjectives, just have truth. Why did... The, the man was Doug Paget. Why did he say, don't have adjectives? The Bible does. Because if you don't define something, then you have compromise, altered state of consciousness. You have your truth, I have my truth. And nobody can really know the truth. But that's not what the Bible claimed. Now, here's something that you need to realize. It is factual that a lot of people don't think the Bible's really true. Some people say that the Bible is myth. Some people say no one can know the truth. And I call that the little engine that couldn't. Since we are not omniscient, says the compromised world, 
Therefore, let's give up. We, we're not God. We can't know everything. Therefore, we know nothing. And we can choose whatever we want to believe it's valid enough. Now, what Paul claimed, now here's people that had power over him. They could have done anything they wanted with him. Nobody would have complained. Could have killed him. They didn't. True rational words. For the king knows about these things. To him, I speak boldly. If you know something's true and you believe it's true, speaking boldly is not bad, it's good. And what's true is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead bodily. He appeared to witnesses. He proved his claims. No other religion has that. And it seems as we are in this period of time, everybody gets to have their religion. I'm in favor of freedom of religion as far as a political idea. But that you have a religion doesn't mean yours is true for you, somebody else is true for somebody else. What we want to know is, is is it vain to have the religion? Or is it based on cold, sober fact? And is there a future judgment? Can it be true that we can turn to Christ and have forgiveness of sins and know we have eternal life and there is a resurrection of the just and the unjust one unto eternal reward and the other unto punishment? Interesting, when I've asked seeker-sensitive groups whether they'd be willing to do that, all they'll say is, well, I believe those things, but will you preach it? It doesn't fit with our vision. That's what some have heard. Others have testified to that. For the king knows about these things, and I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, there were people on the scene of history when these things happened. There were the soldiers at the tomb. There were the critics. There were the enemies. And as has been said, there were people with means, motive, and opportunity to disprove this by producing the body. And they did not. So if you have means, motive, and opportunity, and you do not do it, it's tacitly showing it happened. And there are several books that have been written by former critics. One of the first ones was uh, Who Moved the Stone? That's from 1910. And I think, Brian, didn't you see that someone else wrote a book like that by the name of Strobel? Yeah, Strobel. Yeah. Yeah. There are people that have examined this as critics and determined it was true. Go ahead. I'll be mentioning that book today in the sermon, Who Moved the Stone? Frank Morris. Yeah. So checks in the mail. Well, I didn't, I didn't mean to <laughs> no, that's great. steal any thunder. I'm glad he did. But I was going to just mention, you know, in the bottom there in the blue, for this has not been done in a corner. That's yeah. one of the issues with Christianity is it's public. What happened to Christ was public. Yeah. You know, when the uh, Jews used to sacrifice 
on the Day of Atonement, the, the goat that was in the Holy of Holies, no one could see it. It was behind the curtain. There was one man, the high priest, once a year that could see it. But in Romans 3.25, he says, sorry, I've got my uh, big print Bible, but it's still not quite enough. I'll have to get my cheaters out. But it says that he was the one who was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So Christ is crucified publicly. He's raised publicly. Paul is saying that these things didn't happen in a corner. It was for all to see. And that's what's different between Christianity, the mystery religions, the people who make things up. Theirs isn't done publicly. Ours are built, as Bob has often said for many years, from this passage on cold, sober truth. Cold, sober truth. It's okay to have adjectives with truth, unlike what I was told in a debate. Go ahead, Brian. I just wanted to say something as far as the truth goes, and absolute truth. Uh, if if what we see here that's happening with Paul proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you can't have A being true and then other people saying non-A is also true. So you can't have those things both being yeah, true. Yeah, the law of non-contradiction uh, would be that A is not non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. You can equivocate, okay? And people equivocate. That happened literally in that public debate because I said, well, well, you can say that there are no categories, but when you walk out of the building, you walk out through the door, not through the wall. The other person said, radio waves go through a wall, then went on to something else. But but, uh, I should have forced it back to that. Okay, so then you can't tune in your radio. Because 98.5 isn't 101 or whatever. You know what I mean? So he did not disprove anything. Besides, it's absurd to disprove the law of non-contradiction. You have to use it to disprove it. And that's like being an atheist who says there is no God. But you have to be omniscient to know there's no God. So it's an absurd argument. Here's a... I want to pass this on. Someone taught me a long time ago, and I'm so thankful for this. Never go into the arena of public debate with a weak argument. And an ad hominem argument doesn't work. Arguments that can be refuted. Somebody out there smarter than me, whoever's debating. So once you have your debate, take out all the weak arguments. Because that's the only one they'll ever hear. If you have five really great points and you think, you know, if I had seven or six or eight, that'd be even better. The ones you add are the ones, the only ones they'll ever hear. That happens in every arena, political arena, religion, uh, politics, everything. Just get the weak ones out and go with the strong ones and they won't be able to refute them. Go ahead. Yeah, I just noticed also, just to your point uh, with uh, Festus, he said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You see, in other words, he didn't use any substantive argument. Right, because he didn't have one. Right, he didn't have one. So, you know, with a non-believer, go look at the Bible 
and try to disprove the, the rational argument that is made in the Bible. And most people can't do it. It's amazing how many people just will go with, you are out of your mind, or your name-calling, or whatever, rather, yeah. than, rather than objective, uh, substantive, uh, factual stuff. Right. So we don't need to do that because we have cold, sober truth. Now down in the corner of public, let's go to verse 27. Now notice how the universal call comes in here. This is amazing. Acts 26, 27 through 29. King Agrippa. Now, remember, Agrippa was in charge of that part of the world because of his links as a, with some Jewish ancestry. King Agrippa, uh, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And I'm going to do some quotes here, but I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, I have this in red, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, what? And what did Paul say? And Paul said, whether in a short or long, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, that is, a believer in Christ, except for these chains. chains. In other words, he did not wish evil on Agrippa. It's hard not to be that way. But the fact is, this is the universal call. This is Isaiah 49, 6. Come to me, or Jesus said, come to me all you are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. That, that in Luke 24, they're supposed to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. We don't know who's going to believe. And uh, Paul was doing right by saying this. Let me quote Tannehill, and then if you want to uh, pull this up in your Bible, Luke 21, 12, and 13. I thank God that I ended up in seminary when I did, and that one of my teachers pointed out Tannehill's work on the narrative unity of Luke Acts. I've been studying Luke Acts ever since and I find more evidence of this narrative unity every time. But be ready with Luke 21 12. It says first I'm going to cite Tannehill. Hope that some Jews might still accept the Christian message says Tannehill is held open by the positive response of the Pharisees in 23, 6 through 9. And the suggestion that Agrippa, who believes, excuse me, in the prophets, might thereby come to believe in Jesus Messiah. Paul appeals to Agrippa on the basis of the hope of Israel and the message of the prophets, that is, he appeals to him as a Jew. Paul is being presented as a dedicated and resourceful evangelist who is able to keep the mission to the Jews alive in difficult times. Who was attacking Paul? The Jews in Jerusalem, Pharisees and Sadducees. But now that you've turned there, let me read to you Luke 21, 12 and 13. This is what is said. But before all these things... 
talking about eschatological events, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So why? Luke 21, 13. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. And to that end, what's so sad is when people who are very prominent Christians that everyone knows, everybody's heard about, end up before civil authorities and they don't even mention anything that's distinctively Christian. Paul didn't come before Agrippa and say, I've got a plan to make your kingdom a lot nicer for everybody. He didn't say that. Um, He testified about Christ. And then Acts 26, 30, 32. And then the king arose and the governor and Bernice, remember the scandal that had been going on, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. So why appeal to Caesar? Jesus already told him he was going to Rome. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, and then, I mean, just with the universal call, you, you have the, the parable of the, the soils and the, the scattering of the seed of the yeah. word. Yeah. And you have different responses to it. And so you look at one like uh, Felix, uh, who was uh, earlier governor, and uh, you mentioned where he says, go away for the present. Uh, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And but, so at that point, it's like there's some mixed, okay, maybe he's kind of interested he, in what he's saying, but he's also kind of hoping he gives him some money. But he, but he never that, got the money. That I think, Shremata, uh, uh, the love of wealth yeah. uh, that chokes out uh, the... Isn't choke- it that like the, in the parables where the guy walks away sad because he had riches? And then in, in the last line, like this is ultimately telling. If this is where his story ends, and it's where it ends as far as Acts goes, what's revealed, when two years had, had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by uh, Porcius or Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Oh, he didn't really get the message about, like it didn't strike him to the heart about righteousness and self-control and the, the coming judgment. Leaving Paul in prison to do the Jews a favor is very telling of the state of his heart at this moment in yeah, his life. Right. And similar to with like Festus, oh, would you too? you know, have, have me become a Christian. But then he's talking with the Jews. Hey, Paul, I could take you up to Jerusalem, even though he's already heard that they're planning to kill him and set up an ambush. I, would you like to go up to Jerusalem to be tried there? They could have let him, let him free. But, but yeah, but Paul preaches regardless of the, the response. Right. Now, here's the point. The resurrection is cold, sober truth. Jesus does reign. There will be a future judgment. 
and everyone is going to need to be right with God through repentance, faith in Christ, or they're going to be on the wrong side of that judgment. We can't delete the things we don't like in the Bible or say we believe, but they don't help our cause politically. We can't delete those. Now, um, one time I did have a chance to talk to someone who was called before kings that I, that was the encounter about forgiveness of sins out at that saddleback. And sadly, the person ended up at an inauguration and all the stuff never said a word about the gospel. And if we hope that Christ in this life only, is that all it is, a religion to make this life better? Or do we need forgiveness of sins? Eric will be preaching about the resurrection and the evidence and calling us to believe the truth. And whether in good circumstances or undesirable ones, those who are right with God have the gift of eternal life. Our sins are forgiven. We have hope. And there will be a future resurrection. And God is just. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. We thank you today as most people gather with families that we can remember what you've done and pray for wisdom for everyone. Pray for Eric as he preaches the truth to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to know you and hear your word and care for one another. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.